Hey everybody. Hey Ovi. Hey. Have you ever been in a mosh pit? Truthfully? Yeah. Like I know you that you've gone to tons and tons of shows. Yeah. You ever been to like a punky thrashed up mosh pit show? The closest I have actually been to moshing was at an Andrew WK show. Okay, in, that's impressive in, already. In which it seemed like everyone was moshing, but I don't really have an acute memory of actually participating. So I'm going to say no. I think the Andrew W.K. show, I don't think it was moshing. I think it was just their jubilant form of dancing. <laughs> yeah. Which is brutal. Yeah, but my friend I went with, she was wearing flip-flops, and she, <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> she <laughs> lost her flip-flop in the middle of the floor and had to go the rest of the show wearing only one shoe. And then when it was over, everybody cleared out, and then she found her flip-flop in the middle of the floor. Hey. So she got it back. But, That's cool. Yeah. Risk your toes the rest of the time. <laughs> well, I mean, she risked her toes anyway by wearing flip-flops. Yeah. But have you? No, I have not really moshed. I was never into that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Once I was at a nerd rock show, like power pop sort of thing with keyboards, and there was the band that was there for... And the band that was showing up later was slightly stupid. And they are, like, kind of skinhead band. But, like, skinhead dudes like them. Mm. And I mean kind of like uh, Long Beach City, somewhat racist skinheads. Oh, okay. Uh, the people who listen to Sublime, not calling them racist, but yeah. slightly stupid took over that audience. But then that audience was also, like really low class and uh-huh. wanted to beat up nerds oh. and that's what we we were mm-hmm. and it was me this guy that looked kind of like Wee herman and we were deflecting punks off of us uh-huh. and then the guitarist from the band the band's teen heroes jumps down and he's just this little white guy and he's like doing the same thing so there's one big white guy me there's a medium white guy who looks like Wee herman and then there's a, <laughs> another little white guy was a guitarist we're deflecting these guys off and then the keyboardist who is a big black guy ike owens from mars volta mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he jumps down and everybody scatters <laughs> i'll let that story say what that means but i'll just say those skinhead punk dudes were all white i i understand so yes. <laughs> yeah that's my experience in a pit but we weren't actually in it we were trying to protect all the other frail nerds uh-huh it always seemed dangerous to me and maybe that sounds lame but it always like seemed like a manifestation of, of white guy anger it kind of is so, it's suburban angst yeah that's from all my experiences looking into the pit mm-hmm. from afar uh-huh. it's suburban angst Andrew, I have a confession. Okay. I'm not really a punk. Well, don't confess to me. I already know that you're not a punk. <laughs> confess to the, the audience. Yeah, okay. Punk rock. Wow. Um, you're more of a garage girl. Yeah, that's more accurate. You're right. Because I, I didn't meet you in any kind of way as punk, but then you start bringing up garage bands. Yeah, yeah, that's more me, which, you know, when I say I'm not a punk, so we all have this idea of what a punk rocker is, and, you know, it's the stereotypical, you know, Sid Vicious guy. We're kind of all accurate in that assessment of one type of punk anyway. Yeah. When you say punk, the cartoon image of the punk Uh shows up, and Uh you're like, yes, we all agree. Yeah. But. But, you know, there's... There's way more to it than that, and it's more about ideals than it is about style. (laughs) It's more about ideals and motivations than it is about style. So when I say I'm not a punk, you know, I kind of am a punk. Like, I I subscribe to certain anti-establishment ideals. I just don't have, you know, studded collars and stuff. Hey, uh, my co-host on one of the other shows that I do, John, is this total industrial, his soul, inside his soul, is all mm-hmm. rivets and black and pale skin and black hair <laughs> yeah. and black pleather and, like I said, rivets and bolts. Yeah, okay. But you look at him, he's the most mild-mannered. That's not John outwardly at all. Yeah. There's a quote from, from Patti Smith, who I have always admired, and I really, really like this quote from her. She says that punk rock is just another word for freedom, and I think that that's more the philosophy that I support subscribe to as opposed to the other which is anarchy right well it's... you would rather have freedom than anarchy yeah because anarchy is like no rules all rules kill die death well Stop yeah them. 
I mean, it's it's freedom to do what you want, but of course, you know, we're human beings, we have to live within reason. There's that thing about authenticity with punk rock, you know, like, I was always afraid, and I still have this fear, this is part of my confession, that I'm going to be regarded as a poser. Oh, yes. I know all too well about poser. <laughs> For I was never a poser, because I never got that far. Ah. Like, I had the desire. Like, I was like... I live too far away from the beach. I can't be a surfer. <laughs> uh, give me a skateboard. A Veriflex from Kmart. One of those right, cheapos. Right. I can TikTok. I can maybe Ollie if I'm <laughs> standing still. That's as far as I went with that. So I didn't quite get to the poser status of being like, yeah, what? <laughs> Totally. Yeah, I can, whatever. Yeah, that's me. No. For me, when I was a teenager, it, well, you know, I grew up in the 90s, and I worked at an independent radio station, and we would always get records and things from, from various independent record labels across the nation, and I took it as a hobby on my own time to write to all of these record labels and tell them how much I appreciate them and what they're doing and, you know, ask for a catalog, of course. And hopefully free records. <laughs> Maybe. I wrote a letter to Epitaph Records in, I don't know, I'm going to say maybe 96, 97. Okay. I didn't get a response from them, but what I did get is a catalog in the mail, but it wasn't addressed to me. It was addressed to Hickville because I lived in Tennessee. Oh, dude. So I figure, you know, they're trying to be funny or, you know, whoever did that was trying to be funny. But I was like, oh, I'm such a poser. They think I'm a poser. Oh, my God. And it's, uh, it's, stuck, it's stuck with me forever. Right. You didn't think... Those buttholes? Well, kind of. I mean, it kind of did hurt my feelings. I'm going to be honest. I mean, honest. it would. It should, I think, <laughs> hurt at least one feeling. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't yeah. have to be the big feeling. It wasn't it devastating. like a little one over to the left or side or something. But, like, that's kind of a butthole move. Yeah. So, I didn't try to be a punk after that. <laughs> You're like, I've been found out. My... <laughs> See, that's somebody kind of discouraging your interest by being snarky, you know? Mm -hmm. So, why are we talking about punk rock anyway? Well, why are we? Because the movies that we have for you, dear listeners, today are Repo Man. And Repo Chick. Kinda. I mean, we're gonna talk about it. I have some words. I, I do too. But Repo Man, 1984. Hey, baby, you need a ride? Meet Otto, master repossessor of cars. I'm going to have to torture you. He meets the weirdest people. Let's go do some crimes. And stumbles into the strangest situations. You think it's too late uh, for us to get romantically involved? But nothing could prepare him for the ultimate repossession. Wow, this is intense. Repo Man, rated R. Starts Friday, May 4th at selected theaters and drive-ins near you. Alex Cox. Giant student film. I say that because it was his UCLA thesis. Mm. But he did actually have a brand new makeshift sort of studio behind him. He had executive producer Mike Nesmith from The Monkees. And he had other producers that just formed a company. And he just went to them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they said, yeah. I think the budget was like $160,000. So how did he get all the actors that he has <laughs> who are either notable or name actors or would-be? Yeah. That's weird. Well, Emilio wasn't really a star yet. That's the would-be. Yeah, and Harry Dean Stanton. Originally, he wanted Dennis Hopper. Really? Um, Alex Cox wanted Dennis Hopper to play Bud, but um, Dennis Hopper cost a little bit too much money. And the other funny thing is when, because Alex Cox was impressed with Harry Dean's performance in the 70s films, like uh, he was in Two Lane Blacktop and this movie called Cockfighter. He's also an alien. Right? So when Alex Cox approached Harry Dean's agent, the agent was like, nah, you don't want him. But you know who you really want is Mick Jagger. What? Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of unbelievable, but... Uh, I just... I know, I can't even imagine him being like, Reaper Man's always intense! You know? <laughs> <Right>? Duck lipping. <laughs> yeah. I can't even... No. I mean, I can't... I just did imagine it, so that's... <laughs> on my brain. Right. So I, I'm really, really glad that Alex was like, no, I think I'll take Harry Dean. And, and Harry Dean was like, yeah, I'll do this movie. I'm glad that he did the movie. Yeah. Before we go any further, though, Andrew, can you give me a brief synopsis of Repo Man? I'll try. Emilio is a punk. Punk ideals. Damn the man sort of thing. Gets fired. Then goes home. Talks to his parents. His parents suck. <laughs> Decides to, like, whatever. Walk down the street. He's just bumming. Harry Dean comes by, finagles him into helping him repo a car. And there he becomes a Repo Man. Unwittingly and he's, I'll never 
So that's almost the movie. In the meantime, there is a guy with an eye patch driving around in a, an irradiated Chevy Malibu, which has something magical in the back. I'm saying magical, it's science fiction, but it's yeah. in the trunk. If it's opened and you're standing near it, you just get vaporized mm-hmm. with green light. Mm-hmm. That happens to a few people throughout the story, but that is a highly sought after vehicle. It's put on the repo list and everybody's looking for it. Yeah, it's it, got a prize of $20,000. So the people behind that are the government. They're actually looking for it. So if you repo it, you turn it in, you get the, uh-oh, it's the government. Uh-huh, they might not even pay you. But everybody's looking for it because of the Quentin Tarantino-esque, what is it in the trunk? MacGuffin, you say? Yeah, that's the word. The MacGuffin. <laughs> Doesn't matter really what it is. It's just that it is. Along the way, there are a bunch of colorful characters and that's it. Indeed. Really, that's it. You know, this was one of my favorite films of all time and I have trouble describing why I like it because it's one of those things that I have so much emotion about. Like in my head, I have these things going on where like, oh, this makes sense and this makes sense and this is connected to this and this and this. And it's like so glorious to me that like I can't exactly express into words what I'm feeling about it. Hmm. So why don't you tell me what you think about it? I can't. Well, okay. Uh, try? All right. Let's get into the themes of this movie because they are abundant. Well, I know that this comes at 83, 84. So when mm-hmm. a movie's shot, it's usually like a year at least before mm-hmm. it's released. So 83 is hot on the heels of the 70s. And the 70s were pretty dismal in all kinds of ways. Yeah. George Romero directed a movie about one of the ways, which this movie does have something to do with. But his focused on mall culture. Yeah. Dawn of the Dead, right? So it's shambling zombies. Uh-huh, Urgh, uh-huh, that's uh-huh. everybody in their consumerist mindset yeah. going to the mall and walking around in circles and buying, buying, buying. Well, make those purchases a little bit bigger. And that's what this movie, at least one of the themes, has to do with. Cars, big ticket purchases. Right. I think uh, along the lines of consumerism, what I think is important to note about this film is its idea of how you can package happiness and how marketing works for us. And, you know, like I go to a store and I see this thing that I don't really need, but it has an awesome looking package, like the design of it's really great. Mm -hmm. Um, It could be just like, you know, a package of memory game cards, but they have this really, really great, Swedish looking design and I'm like I need this. And so, there's only going to be a fraction of the population that actually responds the way you do. Uh-huh. There's another fraction that doesn't really care too much about packaging but they just care that it says certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes on it even though that is an arbitrary, <laughs> yeah. a dumb system. So it really has a lot to say about what makes us happy and comfortable with things. The most notable thing in this film is the use of generic products from the Ralph's stores. Except what's funny is that behind that there's the actual product placement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just like uh, almost beyond the, the eye line. If it was on TV, it would probably be cropped or something because Maybe, it's pushed yeah. up full screen. Maybe. But that's <laughs> just in that scene. What is it? Lays or something? And then it's generic everything. Right. So it's not really on purpose. They got those props for free, basically. So oh, so they just decided yeah. to run with it. <laughs> so like, yeah. You can tell also Kevin, the the guy he's yeah. singing in the Seven Up song. Yeah. So it's not really on purpose to not have product placement. When I was a kid, when I say kid i mean maybe 13 or something when i first saw repo man what wait 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 it was on tv where what i don't know but i remember watching it on cable like the tv version of it where they say flip you and and melon farmer that's so i awesome. saw those yes i was first coming into the realization uh, about like dystopian societies and everything so i thought that those generic label cans and stuff were so clever because i was like oh it's like 1984 and like i was really Really just starting to get into this idea of post-apocalyptic oppressive society stuff huh. but turns out it wasn't well it was and it wasn't it's a happy right. accident right, so right. as you say in the script you have kevin singing a uh, jingle yeah. america's drinking seven up and it sure feels right feeling lucky seven kevin stop singing seven. man huh what's the singing guy 
for a product right there next to them is a bunch of generic anti-marketed product and so it's like this tug of war between two ideals and it actually makes for a happy accident in that film it's also behind in the liquor store and all that stuff behind uh-huh, there, uh-huh. the cigarette boxes and whatever the other thing i find is pretty funny is that there is a obvious dianetics joke when miller the uh his job he's a philosopher that's his job <laughs> he stands there by his barrel burning personal items that are found in cars and stuff that have been repossessed and he philosophizes yeah and Otto our Emilio guy every once in a while listens to him mm-hmm. pontificate mm-hmm. the joke that I'm referring to is he finds a book in one of the cars and he tosses it into his garbage can fire the book title is an obvious play on Dianetics the book that L. Ron Hubbard wrote yeah, which the is the Stepping basis Stone. for Scientology yeah. the title of the book is like Diuretics or something I don't remember exactly it's funny because it's a comment on self-help industry and how we pay to achieve happiness in our lives. So it's like this pre-packaged guarantee that you're going to find enlightenment. You know, slight off-topic almost, sort of. I mean, Scientology is part of the L.A. tapestry, and this movie is set in L.A. They set up shop where Bruce Lee used to teach. The Scientology Center? Mm Mm-hmm. They have that building there. Oh. I know, right? You can't just... I, I want to go look at where Bruce Lee taught Kareem Abdul-Jabbar how to kick. I mean, you can go, but it's not going to look like that place. <laughs> you might get roped into something. Though, speaking of Miller and Otto, there's a thing that comes up in our life, mm-hmm. you and me. Mm-hmm. That Okay, I'll tell you this. My confession is, before I met you, I had never actually seen this movie. Oh. I'd heard about it. I went ahead and I bought it because of you. And I enjoy it, right? But okay. there's one thing that really does speak to me, because it does come up a lot in my life, is the term plate of shrimp. Aha. So much so that after watching the Criterion Edition, we later went out to breakfast and you pointed out on the wall, plate of shrimp, shrimp plate special, whatever. Right, right. Same thing. Uh-huh. And I never see that actually out in the wild. Even that phrase just means lots of different coincidences. Yeah. Lining up. Miller talks to Otto about that. A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this like lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. I'll give you an example, show you what I mean. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp out of the blue. No explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. You eat a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? This is one of my favorite things of any movie. It's one of my favorite things I just... (laughs) It is something that... I say a lot and I end up having to explain to a lot of people. So if I say plate of shrimp to somebody and they like laugh, like I know that they know what I'm talking to just by their response, it's so gleeful to me. Like I feel so great. It's very satisfying. That I don't have to explain. <laughs> I think it's satisfying when people get it because, yeah, well, not just because you don't yeah, have to explain it to somebody who's ignorant of the concept, but that they're in on it. Yeah, it's a connection that you sort make. of camaraderie. Yeah, type of thing. you mentioned earlier this film was probably produced in 1983. It was yeah. re- released in '84. Yeah. So we know what was going on in America, especially, but also the world during that time uh, when Ronald Reagan was president, when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. Reaganism. Ugh. Thatcherism. It's definitely one of the most fascinating periods of history to me. I wrote several papers during my tenure as a political science major at my university. So Reaganism to me is just probably like the worst thing that ever existed. I mean, I know it's not most likely, but what this film says about Reaganism, I'm like, man, I'm on the level with this. Care to elaborate? But first, I was a little kid in the 70s and the 80s living in Europe. So I didn't Mm -hmm. really see a lot of this American struggle and strife during that time. And when I look back on the 70s cinema, it totally bums me out because I get to see a lot of the hardships, Uh especially in city movies. It makes me feel all kinds of bad. Mm -hmm. So I avoid the 70s cinema most of the time, unless it's Jaws or Mad Max and Alien. But (laughs) we came back in 85. Like you moved back to America in 85? Yeah. Okay. And so 
Dad was in the Air Force. I was around, served the country, positive, 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 positive. Yeah. So I didn't really see the actual negative, negative, negative. Okay. So elaborate. Okay. One of the reasons that Reagan was elected was he had these masterful campaign ads, and one of them was, It's Morning Again in America. It's Morning Again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? So what you're saying about the 70s, which politically, I mean, I don't want to get into that too much, but what you're talking about with the 70s films that make you feel uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. you're talking about the Midnight Cowboy thing where everything just seems kind of dirty and Times Square was all gross at the time. Well, yeah, Times Square, 42nd Street, uh-huh. exploitation movies, Reign Supreme, right, right. be it black exploitation, sex exploitation, or any other exploitation. Yeah. And especially if they were set in the cities, it was underlit. Only when Martin Scorsese worked on it, even his early ones were kind of underlit, but like one that I can handle is Taxi Driver because everything's mm-hmm. lit beautifully and uh, it's wonderful, yeah. right? Yeah. But other movies set during that time just have this grit and grime and darkness over everything. And it's even into the mid-80s, it's a lot like that if you have a cheaper made film. Sure. That kind of attitude, you know, um, art reflects the culture, right? Sure. So the attitude was also kind of you know, grimy. So Reagan comes along and he's got this, it's morning again in America. Everything's going to be okay and hunky-dory and it's the American dream all over again. It's a hopeful message. Right, right. It is. But, you know, there's some hollowness to it because of certain political agendas. But what I'm getting at, there was a threat of nuclear war. Also, another campaign ad was There is a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame, others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear. Mm-hmm. Alluding to Russia. But the threat of nuclear war, which is a big part of this film with the neutron bomb. But really, Reaganomics was the thing. And the failings of Reaganomics, pushing the people onto the streets. Trickle down economics? Yes trickle down economics George Bush who actually coined that term Mm. because when he ran against Ronald Reagan he knew that Reaganomics was a terrible idea but then he became vice president so whatever well I forgot That's literally my only Ronald Reagan impression that I could do. Yeah. There is a scene in Repo Man where Bud, who is Harry Dean Stanton's character, he's just gotten fired from the Helping Hands Acceptance Corporation. (laughs) Which is a really funny title for taking your stuff because you can't pay for it. Right. Company. He's in the car with Otto, and they're just driving around, and you see all these homeless people. I know what you're going to get at the line, but first, this is very interesting interesting and I noted this. He's yelling at vagrants, vagabonds, uh-huh. and homeless people and he's just ripping into them uh-huh. saying, trash. Makes you wonder how much they owe. Most of them are on the run. Don't even use their flipping social security numbers. There's just some way to find out how much the melon farmers owe and making them pay. They're winos. They don't have any money. You think they'd be bums if they did? What is Bud's angle on all of this? Is he for or against the plight of the people? Because he's definitely a repo man. What's his morality? What's his... Thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a conservative viewpoint that, to have the personal responsibility. Like, everyone must be personally responsible for their own wealth and upkeep. There's a little bit of conservatism in Bud, but I think it's really a holdover from that American dream thing. And it, what leads me to that is his whole repo code diatribe. I shall not cause harm to any vehicle nor the personal contents thereof, nor through inaction let that vehicle or the personal contents thereof come to harm. That's what I call the repo code, kid. Don't forget it. Etch it in your brain. Not many people got a code to live by anymore. Hey, look, look at that. Look at those assholes over there. Ordinary people. I hate them. <sighs> Me too. What do you know? See, an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo man spends his life getting into tense situations. Which, by the way, Harry Dean did a lot of consolidating when he was doing those lines. Like it was just like that's too much. Yeah, it was. It was way too much. It was like this really, really long like manifesto. Yeah, and he was like, "No, I'm just gonna get to the point." What else is cool about the Repo Code? It was modeled after the Three Laws of Robotics. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Which are... I don't know. 
first law of robotics. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction cause a human being to come to harm. Second law. A robot must obey all human orders except where those orders come in conflict with the first law. Third law. A robot must protect itself so long as doing so does not conflict with the first two laws. I hate science yeah, fiction. Yeah, we've already established that I'm not into sci-fi, okay? By the way, this is a science fiction film, you, you bonehead. <laughs> I was going to ask that later if you thought this was really sci-fi or not. Yes, it is. If you follow the parameters of what sci-fi are. It tackles themes and ideas through its narrative. Mm -hmm. It also uses strange technologies mm -hmm. and has a flying car. All right, but so does Grease. <sighs> Not the same thing, <laughs> because they don't use strange technologies. That car is powered with bullshit. It's powered with delusion. <laughs> so of course it's sci-fi. The repo code is really interesting um, because it sets up this juxtaposition. So there are a few different repo men characters. One is Bud and the other is Light which I don't know if you noticed, but all the repo men were named after beers. I never noticed. <laughs> I have only seen this movie three times and I have never noticed. So Bud, Light, Miller. Oli. Okay. So you have Bud, Harry Dean Stanton, and you have Light, played by Cy Richardson. They are opposites of each other. Bud makes a big deal about talking about how he's never stolen a car. He's never hotwired a car. He's never broken into a car. He doesn't carry any weapons with him. He dresses like a detective. Like, he does all these things. That's part of the code to him. Like, Light, on the other hand, disregards all of that. He carries a weapon. Though so it's full of blanks. Yeah. He breaks into cars all the time. He hotwires them. They are literally opposites, and I, I find that fascinating. So you have both of those repo guys mentoring at different points. Otto. That's interesting. We're with Bud most of the time with Otto. Mm -hmm. But sometimes Light is there with Otto. I walk into someone's place of work, they shit scared. They know I'm not a cop. Think I'll come to kill them in a wood. I'll kill anybody who crosses me. Know what I mean? Light is a bit more reckless and off the cuff about everything. Yep. All right, going back to Reaganism, we talked about the homeless people, and that was a direct product of trickle-down economics not working, people being kicked out of their houses, can't pay their mortgages, people being kicked out of... Sort of what happened to the housing bubble in 2008. Mm -hmm. But also, and this comes up a lot whenever we do podcasts about things that happened in this era, I think, is that Reagan dismantled a bunch of institutional, not learning facilities, to reference suicidal tendencies, <laughs> the song that's in this movie, but sanitariums. Nut houses, crazy <laughs> right. houses, whatever people right. callously call them. And people went homeless because of that. Yeah, they were they they shut down those institutions and then other people were displaced. It's really kind of sad. Uh, I went to San Francisco once and I sat next to a guy who was just babbling about, I don't know, he would just wouldn't stop talking and then he would like make eye contact and keep talking. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was talking about a frying pan and his wife. Oh, what? That's what it was. Is that a frying pan? And he would, he would be cussing too, but he'd be like, there's a frying pan she had the damn eggs and the eggs wouldn't be done the right way and then she would turn and I would say what's with the frying pan it was like that except he would just not stop huh. and I was just sitting at a park waiting for my friend who's coming out of McDonald's so I think maybe that might have been one of the people's it's just my theory as close as I came to that displaced peoples. Yeah, I guess that's where the stereotype of crazy homeless person really comes from. Especially if it's in California somewhere. Right. There's another thing I wanted to mention was Otto's parents are completely weird to me. Oh, hell yeah. Because they're hippies. They're like way hippie hippie. They're nostalgic hippies. They yeah. haven't grown beyond their bell-bottom jeans and tie-dye. They look like elementary school art teachers to <laughs> me. <laughs> That's really funny because it's true. Yeah. What makes them so weird is that they have been sucked into this TV preacher, this televangelist who is asking for money and they actually sent the money that they had promised Otto for graduating to this preacher. So that's one of the reasons why Otto is so... Anti-everything. Yeah. Your father gave all our extra money to the Reverend's telethon, Otto. 
We're sending Bibles to El Salvador. Well, what about me? You're on the honor roll of the chariots of fire. Same as us, Otto. It was a gift from all of us. Joint They're like entranced by this person. And I was thinking about it. I was like, why? What a hippie. I don't understand that. Like, so if go, you have insight. Well, I was thinking about it. And, you know, it doesn't make sense. But there's a theory going around that once the hippies grew up, they became conservatives. Oh, right. Sure. But I, I don't really think there's much truth you know, to that. That is a thing. Well, SLC Punk referenced that. Chris McDonald. I didn't, I didn't sell out, son. I bought in. Yeah. Is that concept. But these parents are just stoners and they're giving money to a right-wing conservative televangelist who is literally just a greedy bastard. I do want your money because God wants your Money. Yeah, and it's so weird because statistically, as you grow older, your views don't change too much. Like wh whatever political or you know sociological view that you develop in your your formative years, typically stays with you for the rest of your life. So I don't think that there's much truth to the hippies becoming conservative thing. I think that we tend to assume that everyone who was a teenager in 1969 or 1974 or whatever that every single one of them was a hippie hmm. and that's not true like hippies were kind of the um, vocal minority yeah I, I was going to say that the other group was kind of a silent majority so yes exactly hippies were the vocal minority normal people and I say normal <laughs> quotes yeah were the silent majority so like really it wasn't that the hippies grew up and became conservative it was just that people were conservative anyway for the most part yeah yeah so this idea it's fun to think about but I think it kind of misses the mark a little bit but what it kind of furthers is the role of religion in government and how people are duped by people like this tv preacher in this film the preacher thing and the government chasing the car thing mm -hmm. don't really align and collide do they well they do later in the film you see like just kind of in the background that the preacher is on again and he's pleading to his followers a very sad unchristian thing just happened a sweet old lady's car was stolen uh, Chevy Malibu. Brothers and sisters, please, if you've seen this car, just call this toll-free number. Praise the Lord. Yeah, it's a lie, though, because obviously... It's sure. Yeah. So it seems as if this TV preacher is working for the government and lying for them. Right. So that's like the only time that the preacher aligns up yeah. with it. But it doesn't go any further than that, where they have a meeting and the preacher's there. Yeah. Or some right, behind-the-scenes right, right. sort of thing, which a conventional yeah. film would say, here's a backroom meeting, and that's your explanation. Right. It's obvious trying to show us something. Whereas in this film, it's like, you have to be paying attention. And why did and, that happen? Yeah. I did notice it, yeah. but I didn't remember it. Yeah. The religion with government thing is also so fascinating with me, especially this time period and things that were happening, like the moral majority really getting involved into politics and playing with people's minds to get them to vote Republican. Part of the reason that I kicked back so hard in my teens about religion was the moral majority and Jerry Falwell and his misguided followers. I don't have to get too much into that. But. And the other televangelists like Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Yeah, yeah. And all the scandals. I'm totally with you. You know, I will say I have a completely different view on religion and, and what your religious experience should be now, so I don't have so much of that, like... I still have disdain towards charlatans. Yes, yeah, absolutely. But, it, like, I realize now that it is people being charlatans and it's not... Representative of a, a specific faith. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I channel my energy into that specific thing yeah, to I, hate. Yeah, yeah. Really respect for all beliefs. Look, I align with Christ. I do. But I don't align with most Christians and I am the crazy left-wing one of my family. <laughs> yeah. Even though I think more along the lines of the philosophies. Now, if you just read the words that Jesus said and only those, that's what I'm going on. The philosophies of Christ. But if you use those and then extra books in the Bible that say other things that don't necessarily align with Christ to manipulate people and all mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally that's not with the, that That's the charlatan thing. But even Christ said, respect other people and their beliefs. They don't want to hear you. Just respect and stop and go on. Right? Yeah, right. So that's like Jesus saying it. So that's like everybody, including uh, I'll respect the Satanist. Well, sure. Why? I mean, of course. Like, why wouldn't you? Because like hot topic. <laughs> that, that's kind of a joke. But like, because like that sort of 
cartoony thing because like, there's a lot of cartooniness towards pop Satanism type of thing. Yeah. But you respect any kind of belief system mm-hmm. as long as it's not doing damage to anybody. Punk rock. There's a funny thing. A lot of evangelical Christians in youth groups would try to say, you know who's really, uh, really rock and roll? You know who's a hippie, man? <laughs> hey, hey, you know who's really punk rock? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jesus was punk. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he was an iconoclast if the history serves us right. So, yeah, punk, hippie, rock and roll. Thanks, man. You're really cool. <laughs> That's what Jesus Christ Superstar was about. Oh, right. And stuff like that. Godspell. Like, yeah, Godspell. <laughs> right? So, I mean, Jesus was a punk, man. Sure. Went moshing in the temple. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah. He did. Hey, what's that song that Otto sings when he's just sitting there bumming around? That is TV Party. We're just dedicated by Black Flag. To our favorite uh, shows. Right. Yes, yeah, so that is on the soundtrack, the Black Flag version. Dallas! Jefferson! His version's pretty funny. <laughs> so, you know, this film did not do well in the theater. It was in the theater for one week and got pulled. Got pulled? Got pulled. Because it wasn't making money or it, because yeah, of controversy? Very low performance. Huh. They didn't decide to put it midnight? I, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like a cult film at the time. It just come Dang, out. Dang, man. So, but the soundtrack was performing wildly. Like, everyone bought the soundtrack. So, later on, they re-released the film based on the popularity of the soundtrack. And it did a little bit better. Because it probably pushed, like, featuring the music of... Probably, probably. Now, the soundtrack is really iconic. Like, if you mention any punk rock soundtrack, people are going to be like, Oh, Repo Man, Repo Man. You know? I love the song from the soundtrack, and I didn't even know that it was on the soundtrack until way, 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 way later. <sighs> and it is Suicidal Tendencies, Institutionalized. And I heard that all the time on K-Rock, and I never knew that it was from... From this film. The soundtrack, I mean, it's a bunch of punk rock songs, and it's cool. I had it, because, you know, I'm cool. But, except I'm not a punk, but... Poser. (laughs) Hickville. (laughs) Hickville. Hickville. The most recognizable song probably is Iggy Pop's theme, Repo Man. Yeah. So Iggy said when Alex Cox approached him to do the theme for this movie, Alex went to his apartment, which Iggy said at the time he was living in this unfurnished efficiency apartment near the Whiskey A Go Go. And what's an efficiency apartment? It's like a studio, but I mean, it's just it has very little. Like it doesn't have maybe a full stove, or maybe it doesn't have a stove at all, or you know, it's like very minimal. It's like a hotel room. Yeah, kind of. This is right before Bo. We picked him up? Yeah, this was before his resurgence. So Alex went and asked him to do this song. And he explained to me uh, about the film he was making. And he said, I want you to do a song for me. Do what you want. And uh, at the time, I'd had a hiccup in my career due to my wild lifestyle. I was uh, sort of on the ropes and uh, was not making much money, was not on a major, was needed uh, some breathing space. I've done a lot of this kind of work since, and it's very, very rare that for something as finance intensive as a film, that anyone will give you a carte blanche opportunity like that. It was like a gift from God to express myself. It was just wonderful. That gave him the confidence, really, to get his career back on track. Hmm. So really, this song Repo Man revitalized Iggy Pop. And Would you say it, it repossessed Iggy Pop's career? Um, Iggy Pop repossessed um, his own career? <laughs> so it really, really put him back in a place where he needed to be. There are other songs in the soundtrack that I really like. I like Pablo Picasso. Pablo Picasso was never called an asshole. Although the Burning Sensations version of this isn't my favorite one because I... I'm Garage a, girl. I'm a hipster, okay? And I, I like the modern lovers, whatever. Blah, 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 blah. 
Garage Girl. But the other song that I really, really like on the soundtrack is by The Plugs, and it's this Chicano kind of surf Right, music. so that was notable to me because living in Southern California and now here in South Texas, Hispanic music was very traditional, very Tejano. So accordions and sort of, uh, I noticed because in the mid 90s I was into ska. Some of it has rhythm in common with ska, but like this song was like a light punk song. Yeah. But Hispanic. Yeah. And 1984. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a really cool song. It stands out because it's unlike any other previous Hispanic song that I had ever heard. I mean, you have the Jets and you have Selena. What, you've never heard Lowrider? Oh, well, yeah, Lowrider. But the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it struck me as interesting because it's also a very cool sounding song. So thank goodness for this soundtrack, really, because it really helped Repo Man become the cult film that it is. So did you ever figure out what's in the trunk? It's hard to discern. You're led to believe that it's aliens. However, they keep talking about, well, periodically, they keep dropping neutron bomb knowledge. You ever hear the neutron bomb? Destroys people. Leaves buildings standing. Fits in a suitcase. So small. No one knows it's there till blam eyes melts skin explodes everybody dead right and um supplemental material uh, on the criterion edition is cox is sitting there with the guy who created the neutron bomb like the real creator of the neutron bomb who worked with oppenheimer and you know all those guys a real scientist yeah not an actor right so you're led to believe that maybe it's not aliens in the trunk, maybe it's neutron bomb in the trunk because it fits in a suitcase and, you know, you can get blowed up by it real good. Without damaging any property. Yeah, and it doesn't hurt your shoes, <laughs> apparently. Wow. Thanks, Mike Nesmith. Right. But the whole thing with Otto's girlfriend is weird because she keeps talking about aliens. Right. Scientists also in our secret sense smuggle the corpses off his Air Force base. I don't know, it's really confusing and I can't really determine what what it really is. I mean it really is a MacGuffin. And she is at one point coerced to torture Otto to get information about the car. This is Agent Rogers. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Since time is short and you may lie, I'm going to have to torture you. But I want you to know it isn't personal. Look, uh, this isn't really necessary. I'll tell you anything you want to know. Good. Where is the Malibu? I don't know. Somebody ripped it from the yard. I don't think he knows. Increase the voltage. What if he's innocent? No one is innocent. Proceed. And by the end of the movie, she's still cool with him for the most part, but he decides to go with Miller, who, if you look at the supplemental material, it implies that Miller's an alien. Hmm, I don't remember that. I'll show you right now. Oh, it does. It's just a photocopy image of Otto and Miller standing by the barrel. And Miller is green with antennae. And he says, you'll see. And that is the clue that I picked up after watching the movie. That Miller might actually be an alien. He might be an alien. He does talk a lot about how people are obsessed with weird stuff. You know the way everybody's into weirdness right now? Books in all the supermarkets about muted triangles, UFOs. How the Mayans invented television, that kind of thing. Yeah, and he gets in the car just like, Miller, what are you doing? And so they both get in the car and fly off. Huh. And the girl is like, You should! I'm glad I tortured you. How could you leave me? I'm the one who's supposed to be in that car. So what do you think of that? Because he's like, screw up relationship. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever. I, I don't really think that they have a relationship. So, I don't, so, I don't think know. so either. One of the deleted scenes was them cuddling, and that would have actually sealed that they have yeah, a relationship. Yeah, that's true. Otherwise, they're just two people who are sort of attracted to each other kind of sometimes. Yeah, that's all. That's it. Do you think this is a car movie? Being that everybody's often in cars driving around L.A. looking for a car, and there is at least one car chase... I would say it's a car movie, but it's not a movie that loves the cars. Because no. <laughs> because no. They're just a power pop band and a good one at that. But they're a power pop band. They're not punk rock. So, no, no. Well, they're punk rock by Patti Smith's definition. Oh, sure. Okay, fine. But 
No. This is a car movie that doesn't love the cars that are in the movie. You know, Fast and Furious, <laughs> fetishized vehicles. This doesn't fetishize vehicles. Well, I think it, okay, not fetishize, but it relies heavily on the car. And so Otto's name is Automatics. Right. So he is the car reference. Yeah. Most of the film takes place in a car. The cars that are used are really cool. Like, I mean, the Malibu is really cool. The Rodriguez brothers' car is really hot. Yeah, but the camera isn't like making camera sex with the vehicle like a car commercial would. Well, yeah, I know like that. Like Fast and Furious type movies, which are car movies would. Like even the movie Bullet did with its crazy the best car chasing, which is also kind of boring by today's standards. Anyway. <laughs> I kind of feel like it is a strange love letter that isn't really a love letter to to cars and car culture the american thing of we drive all the time we like we are so into our cars and what does miller say he says the more you drive the less intelligent you are yeah so he doesn't drive right i just think that it acknowledges that a very American ideal of the freedom of the road, the freedom of the highway. But like you said, it doesn't fetishize anything. It just kind of is an homage to that in a way. It's more of a car movie in idea only, not in execution. Okay, I get that. So in the mid-90s, Mike Nesmith and Alex Cox tried to get a sequel made. It was going to be called Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday. And I don't know what that would have been. But they could not get backing because Emilio wasn't attached to it and and various other things. They just could not get funding for this. Well, I do know that they did create a comic version of it. Yes, that's what I'm getting to. In 2008, they did make a graphic novel. So they were successful in making the sequel in that way but there wasn't like a real repo man sequel until sort of sort of repo chick when your family said that you were disinherited did they offer up any sort of deal they told me to get a job you have 30 seconds to vacate this property (laughs) she's too good since yesterday she has ripped five cars six shopping malls two places of worship. Railroad car is an urban myth existing solely to encourage typical no-hoper jerk-offs like you. That's where you're wrong, because I am no typical no-hoper jerk-off. I saw it. I saw the entire train. It's impossible. That's it. That's a train. That's a train. Do not attempt to adjust your television set. We instruct the President of the United States to close all golf courses. Seriously? Expect our president to become a vegetarian? We agree to insist the president totally be vegetarian and vegan. Aren't the same. If you fail, mortgage defaults will continue to rise, forcing more repossessions. Bailouts will cease to save us. Businesses will fail, leading to rising unemployment, zero credit, a worldwide recession, and thus the end of the repo trade. You know, at first, I kind of felt bad. It's like my friend the Dalai Lama said. You guys are repo men. Man, I saw a movie about you. Shut up. Is Repo Chick a remake? of Repo Man. It's a remake that really pales in comparison, which is strange because it's the same director. Absolutely different techniques. It's an experimental film, not in the sense that the first one is an experimental film, because the first one is because it's unconventional and Uh it has a bunch of different weirdo things and it's almost a meandering non-plot plot plot type Mm -hmm. of thing Mm -hmm. that, you know, indie movies love to do. But this one uses miniatures exclusively Mm-hmm. in the set decoration and the vehicles everything is a miniature and it's shot green screen mm-hmm. so all the actors which are plentiful and most of them are from repo man mm-hmm. walk around green sets interacting with green everything <laughs> and then married together with these really tiny miniatures they're not like star wars sized miniatures yeah which are huge by the way yeah these are actual miniature train sets yeah 
Yeah. Like when you go to Neil Young's house. Neil Young's house. I was gonna say <laughs> like an attraction, world's largest train set. Yeah. Attraction sort of thing. Yeah. Those are the types of trains that are used here. Mm-hmm. Maybe an inch tall figures would be in those scenes, but instead of inch tall figures, they're the actors shrunk down to that mm-hmm. side. Which seems like it might be creative and interesting, but um, something about it isn't creative or interesting. Sort of feels like an adult swim project. <laughs> like Heart She Holler or Tim Talks to the Mayor. I, I don't watch Adult Swim. I, I, I know what you're, specifically those two things that you were talking about are, but... Saul and the Mole Man, even. Mm-hmm. But that's like the only one that I like is Saul and the Mole Man. Racks. Punk racks. Malopia. Sorry. <laughs> the cheapness of those productions. And with Saul of the Mole Men, it's absolutely perfect, the type of cheapness that they do and the compositing and whatever. In Repo Chick, it comes off more chintzy mm-hmm. than... I like the idea. I don't think they succeeded. Sure. Okay, yeah. You think it's a case of Alex Cox... You, you know how directors, as they get older, they kind of lose their edge. Do you think that that's something that happened to Alex Cox? Or do you think Alex Cox ever really had an edge? Well, he had Sid and Nancy, Walker. Straight to hell. Straight to hell. Straight to hell again, or back (laughs) to hell. Well, that's actually better. It is way better. Coppola did Uh Apocalypse Now Redux. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did Straight to Hell like that and fixed a lot of parts, and I I enjoy that one. If I'm going to try and enjoy Straight to Hell, Mm -hmm. I'm going to enjoy the Redux. I'm not going to enjoy the original. Yeah. The Redux is much better. It's tighter. I think we might revisit that sometime in in this podcast. Perhaps. Okay. But uh, I think he's had something. Whatever that thing is, you could maybe call it It Had (laughs) It. Right, But it's definitely not for a mainstream audience. And that's not to snub my nose at the mainstream audience. It's just really like, I can't see like Marvel saying, Alex Cox, we have a punk rock character. Would you like to direct the movie? (laughs) Right. Let's look at your catalog. Oh, no. (laughs) Never mind. I don't, I don't think so. No, Harry Dean Stanton called Alex Cox an egomaniac. Hmm. Do you think that comes across in his films? Egomaniac? Yeah. Not really. I would say probably from the stories that I've heard about Harry Dean, he would seem like an egomaniac. <laughs> and he's projecting onto Alex Cox. Maybe so. You know, Harry Dean's an interesting fellow, and also we'll get more into Harry, Harry Dean at a later date. But I, I know what you're talking about. He seems like a very gruff, curmudgeon-y old man, but there's also kind of a gentle side to him. Which it is, can be. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of believe him when, when he says that he's an egomaniac. How, how do you think? Because Alex Cox seems to have a very singular vision, and I don't think that he really compromises too much. Okay, that's why he doesn't actually get a lot of movies made. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay, so Repo Chick. What is the story of Repo Chick? So there's Paris Hilton and her entourage. <laughs> her name's not Paris Hilton, but she's Paris Hilton and her entourage are uh, wanting money to Continue. throw around because they don't really work even though she has lots of titles. I'm a cosmetics designer and a fashion designer and a hot couture model and I have my own record company that I'm a media executive producer. I have so many jobs that I can't keep count. But she's a socialite. Her dad, aunt, and grandma refuse to give her her inheritance, but instead they donate it to another church that's in this film, non-related to the other film, all of her money. So she hacks whatever their banking system is and depletes their funds, makes it so that they don't have any money, but she still doesn't have any money. So she has to have a job. So she decides to follow the people who repoed her car. She ends up getting a job with them and she's trying to prove herself, which is actually kind of cool. This repo chick, as spoiled as she is, he writes her as a person who really has the get up and go to try and get stuff done. Because she doesn't like to be told that she can't do it. Mm-hmm. She has gumption. Because she's a spoiled rich girl. The generic thing is spoiled rich girls. As we saw on the Paris Hilton reality shows is that she doesn't know how to do anything. Put her in blue collar situations and look at her be, oh, a hilarious loser. Yeah. And this girl is in blue collar situations and she's thriving 
Ravings. And I find that to be ironic and interesting. And I find the girl's performance to be actually pretty cool. Yeah, it is compelling in a way. And part of the reason is her performance. Jacqueline Jonay is the actress. And her performance as Pixie, even though she's this awful, vapid girl. She's not exactly vapid. Right. And she's somewhat likable. Somewhat. The other performances in this movie, uh, Rosanna Arquette is in it. And she's really, I think, the best actor in this. Rosanna Arquette playing Joan Jett, kind of? I said Rosanna Arquette dressed as Tom Waits. Okay, but her hair is also black, so that's yeah. why I was saying Joan Jett. I think she has the most credible performance, but... She's not on screen enough to really take the show. Right, but who I think does take the show is the actual repo man in this. Um, the character's name is Arizona Gray. Right there it says General George Armstrong Custer, and then underneath it in smaller letters, it says Velvet Glove Acceptance Corporation. That's my company. And he's played by Miguel Sandoval. He's charming. Yeah, he's got this charisma, and you believe in him. There are other actors who were in Repo Man, Del Zamora and Eddie Velez, who were the Rodriguez brothers in Repo Man. They play two unrelated characters here. Here, yes. Olivia Barish, who played Layla in Repo Man, is in this as a... A communist soldier. Yeah. So this movie has the alignment with Repo Man. That's why I think it is a remake of Repo Man, because there is a government group that is monitoring this. What's the... The vehicle that they're trying to find. Yeah, it's a train this time, which is strange. Yeah, so it's a engine, two cars in the middle, and caboose. a caboose. And don't go into the caboose, because that's where all the bomb, whatever it is, is. It sets it up at the beginning of the movie, because uh-huh. he's missing bombs. I find it odd that he went ahead and did this with the whole trying to find this runaway train uh-huh. instead of the car, but I, I wonder why he just replaced everything with something else. Yeah. It's kind of weird and I don't feel like Repo Chick has... Its own identity? Yeah, its own identity, its own like heart and soul. Something very void in this film and if I didn't know this was an Alex Cox film I would have turned it off after five minutes. Right. You know, so I give it the benefit of the doubt because I know that there is like some sort of artistic credibility going into it. Man, it's kind of hard to watch. No, so the second time I watched was this time with you and that's where I picked up the whole thing where it it was actually a remake Mm -hmm. before I didn't pick that up at all because I think I was watching for the style of film that it was the technique the blue Uh screen the miniatures and, and absorbing all of the visual stuff and some of the performances Again, Jacqueline Janae is solid. So Xander Berkeley is in this film. He is in The Walking Dead, but he is actually from Straight to Hell. So he is Mm -hmm. a Cox player. Yeah. Francis Bay, who was in, I don't know if it's the best, but it's one of my favorite John Carpenter films. Which one's that? In the Mouth of Madness. Yay. She's the axe-wielding tentacle monster lady. (laughs) Francis Bay. She's also in Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me. Take a drink. As David Lynch's son's grandmother, because that's his in the scene with him. So she was playing David Lynch's mother. (laughs) No, David Lynch's son is in the scene that she is. He's that Uh little boy that hops around with the little white mask every so often. That's just David Lynch's son. And I'm saying grandmother because she's so much older. Could be great-grandmother. I don't know. I don't know their relationship. So she's David Lynch's grandmother. I don't know. It's a David Lynch movie. Uh. There's bound to be some confusion. So she's not really David Lynch's mom. Probably. No, absolutely not. (laughs) She's not. Okay. She's an actress named Frances Bay, not Frances Lynch. Oh, well, that's making an assumption. Yeah, but I'm correct. Okay, and then there is Karen Black. Karen Black? Yeah, Karen Black is in this. Who, mind you, she only does science fiction. That's true, she never does horror movies. It's always science fiction, it's never been horror. Burnt Offerings, not a horror movie. No, that's science fiction, definitely. Science fiction. Mm -hmm. Trilogy of Terror with a little tiny doll with a butcher knife. Definitely sci-fi. Yeah. Science fiction. Rest in peace, Karen. Yes, exactly. We like to take the piss out of Karen every so often because that's a ridiculous notion when her catalog of films has a ton of horror in it and she says no horror just sci-fi yeah i think karen black looks a lot like our cat sometimes it's kind of weird this film has uh, pedigree actors as we mentioned Roseanne Arquette, but you have some contemporary actors in mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. one of them stood out she's what i call an interesting beauty because she's really pretty but she's also got a, a not in a bad way but a strange 
face, like angular cheekbones, mm-hmm. large eyes, but she's mm-hmm. really pretty. But her performance is always on whenever I see her in movies. She can play funny, she can play sexy, she can play an android. Right. <laughs> you know, she can do many different facets that I've seen. I've seen probably more of her films than the average Joe, and this is just happening upon them. But I just remember her. Angela Serafian. And she's usually a comedic actress, so this suits her. Yeah, she is one of the standout performers in this movie. She makes it worth checking out. Yeah, well, she and the lead actress. Mm-hmm. But the the scenes that they have together. Mm-hmm. I, I like them. Okay, when you guys are done arguing, can I ask a question? We are not arguing! But also, it's an interesting diversion. It's not a good film. I don't necessarily think he shouldn't have made it, but I wonder why he made this specifically. I don't have an answer for that. I take it you don't like Rebo Chick. I'm going to go on the record and say I do not like Rebo Chick, but go ahead and watch it. See, I think you sometimes <laughs> should watch a movie that you know that you're not going to like or that you assume that you're not going to like. Sometimes a painting is ugly or just bad mm-hmm. and it doesn't kill you to look at it. So that's how movies are sometimes for me. Yeah. It's to test me to actually see if I don't like it. Just to know. Challenge yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So this, it would be that. This is not a substitute for Repo Man. It doesn't have the whole soundtrack thing with it either. No. Culturally, it's kind of fizzly. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it has very much significance. No. Just as you read a footnote at the end of a page, right, right. go ahead and watch this movie. Right. I mean, it, it has it has similar themes in it, but you should just really watch Repo Man. Yeah, if you really want to get down to it. Yeah. That's just about it for Repo Man or Repo Chick. Thanks a lot for listening to our little movie podcast here. Thank you to Cinepunks for... Even though we're not punks. For hosting us, please do go to cinepunks.com. There's lots of awesome content on there. There's writing about films and TV shows. Radios and rodeos? Okay, MXPX. No. But they're punk. You'll find everything there from film reviews to other podcasts, including but not limited to the Cinepunks podcast and horror business and the Black Sun dispatches and more. So please check out Cinepunks and thank you for listening. As always, we love you. Good night, everyone. Good night. Get blowed up by it real good.